Files One Podcast, your intrepid hosts, unplug the internet, wait 30 seconds, then plug it back in to see if that fixes this whole Silicon Valley dystopia thing. Spoiler alert, it does not. And now here are the podcast hosts whose Geek Squad applications were rejected because they could not name every type of USB cable. Lindsay Ford and Allison Goldberg. And welcome to Two Girls, One Podcast. I am one of the girls, Lindsay. And I'm another one, Allie. And here we talk about weird stuff we find out about on the internet. Yes, we do. We named this podcast um, a few years ago, and now there's like a big thing not to call women girls, which I personally have no problem with being called girl. But Lindsay, oh, what are your thoughts? I like- I like being called a woman, but also, I also like feeling young, but I am not. Mm -hmm. So, I don't Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I get it. I don't like it. I try not to call other women girls. Mm -hmm. I say this woman. But it's new for me. I used to call just everyone a girl. I mean, I call my boys girls. Yeah, no, that's different. (laughs) But I just, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Like I, I think there's just like a change personally and in society. Like I feel like once you're over a certain age, it's just like, oh, we're all women now. You know, we're mm-hmm. all adults here. Let's just be adults because it's something weird about not being an adult. But yeah, I, I get it. Um, I don't know. Are we changing the name to women one podcast? <laughs> Um, well, I, I'm okay with it. So it's going to be like one girl, one woman, one podcast. <laughs> I want everyone to know that um, growing up, I was obsessed with Peter Pan. And I used to uh, sit and recite the entire movie from the beginning credits to the ending credits. Um, the Mary Martin version specifically. So I don't oh. believe in growing up. I was an only child so you still are yep okay (laughs) Mm, am i my mom loves bringing new people into the family anyway i had like a very you know how in scary movies there's always a very precocious child who's like too still and too quiet and you're like that kid's gonna kill us all I was afraid that I was coming off as like that type of child. Like I was too mature and self-contained. So in I, the fourth grade, I uh-huh. actively developed a Peter Pan complex, like on purpose. I knew hmm. about it and I decided to be more childlike on purpose. You know and what? We don't stuck. have enough time in this episode to dive into that. So how are you doing, Matt? <laughs> Uh, I'm just thinking, hey, uh, two things. One, uh, it's it's less about the age thing for me, and it's more about the double standard. You would not, most people would not call a group of grown men standing in a corner, hey, boys, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And then when you accept that we call women girls, then that's uh, that's what it raises the uh, the hairs on my neck. And then the other thing that I was just thinking of is um, 
I'm glad you're you were enjoying the Mary Martin version. I don't remember it much, but my kids have seen the Disney version, and woo, there is some uh, classic old school racism uh, in that yeah. one. If you, uh, it's, it's, so it's problematic. like it's not it's not even like oh it was a different time. It's like real bad in some like parts. they're <laughs> dressing up like Native Americans like and pretend yeah. It's, yeah. And Tiger Lily was like the only brown person in any like animated movies so i used to love pretending to be tiger lily as a little girl <laughs> yikes i am mm. pretty sure that in the mary martin version tiger lily's played by a white woman sure oh 100 percent. in fact i think she's my aunt's neighbor actually i <laughs> i know that she is and i've met her <laughs> wow wow okay. yeah and I'll end that story there. <laughs> okay, so today <laughs> we're talking about the internet, but like really talking about the internet. There's a guy who wants to redesign the internet, and that's who we're speaking with. Amazing. You know, I can barely redesign my room, so redesigning the internet <laughs> seems wildly difficult, mm -hmm. and maybe we should just like get rid of it instead. I honestly think that we should unplug it for about a month, maybe even a year, and uh, just take a little hiatus, and then come back fresh. You know what I mean? But I think trying to change it while it already exists is kind of like trying to change a fuckboy. You know what I mean? You can't change that man. He is who he is. Maybe, but... If a fuckboy becomes a man, doesn't he stop being a fuckboy? Yeah, but you know what I mean? Like that douchebag that you're trying to change, but he's not going to change. I feel like that's the internet, you know? Mm. I'm too mature to try to change people, so I don't really understand. Exactly. So I think that we, I don't know. I mean, our guest seems even more optimistic than Mr. Matthew Silverman, who is... A cockeyed optimist. <laughs> yeah, yes and no, we've discussed it. But but our guest today, I, I guess his thesis is, and he'll tell us more, is like, we are the internet. So like, we're seeing the problems with the corporatization of the internet and the siloization. But like, back in the day, the internet was open and it was the World Wide Web and it was peer-to-peer. -peer. And if we, the people, want it, we can do some stuff as users to uh, nudge our way back there, it's not. It's not going to be an overnight change. I, th I think he's talking about a like ten year, twenty year uh, trajectory of like what, or or that the internet is a work in progress. It's not like well, we here's the internet. It's Google and Facebook. That's what we got. And I think he's saying no. We can evolve. We we as the people who comprise the internet can evolve it. And what are some things we can do to uh, nudge it in the right direction? That's that was my take anyway, and I, and I, I share that view. Oh, we just needed the optimist to explain it to us. Now I believe. <laughs> I believe. Clap your hands if you believe. Wee! I think it's so much more complicated than that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, of course fine. It is. You can't You're fly right. with us to Neverland then. Uh, damn it. Um, <laughs> I would love to. Well, I think that the the thing is, it just feels so big and massive, right? So if you can convince people that it's like palatable, not palatable, what is it? Small enough that you can mm -hmm. it, it take it in and make it yours, that would be cool. 
And it keeps happening. Like it happens every single year. We're like, we can't do anything else with the internet. And then there's TikTok, you know, it's like, we can't do anything else with the internet. And then something else will happen. Sure. And those are, but those are platforms and companies coming in. I guess I would liken it a little bit more towards social movements of like, how can we ever overthrow this emperor or how could we possibly uh, undo systemic and racism? Yet, and yet we haven't done it. But we have tried to do it for hundreds of years. Of course. But we are living. You've also argued that we shouldn't leave things up to individuals. I don't know. As in the case of environmentalism, you've said that it it needs to come from government. And corporations. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, we need we need uh, regulation on things like climate change and recycling and and internet, uh, you know, systems and 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 platforms. Of course, but I guess what we're talking about here is the ultimately at the end of the longest timeline, millions of people do have more power than the emperor or the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. But, and sometimes that ends up a bloody revolution. And sometimes it is Martin Luther King protesting, uh, you know, doing a bus boycott in Alabama. Like that was a brutal, awful, shameful time. And yet they changed things by really making huge sacrifices and walking everywhere for a goddamn year because they, you know, because of the bus boycott, like, it worked. It doesn't didn't fix it overnight, and we have a long way to go. But it actually made an impact. And uh, I don't know. There, there are there are ways to do this. You got to get organized, and the powers that be are are certainly uh, not a fan of that sort of stuff, as as usual, right? Historically. Oh man, the world is fucked. <laughs> what do you if guys? Organize, mm-hmm. Organizing is so difficult, and I mean, yeah. I'm not even that. Old or the oh no no I'm definitely not organized. (laughs) I'm I'm not that old or that young, and it seems so hard for me. I feel like you have to be like really young and have a lot of energy to organize, or you have to be really old and really practiced in organizing to organize. And here I am, neither. (laughs) Yeah, I I think there's a tipping point. There's a tipping point where like everyone around you, old, young, and whatever, is like. Oh fuck no! Let's get out in the street. You know what I mean, and uh, that usually is a, a point of no return. Sometimes, so that's it well, g- can that, get scary. That tipping point is the result of a lot of people's constant organization. Like yes, everybody right. feels like, you know, last year's summer of reckoning, like the 2020 summer, was like, oh wow, it sort of just happened. But really, that's not true. There were a yep. lot of people working really hard towards all of that. And then there, of course, is a spark, which was the horrible live witnessed murder of several people in quick succession, culminating in in George Floyd's like nine minute slow murder. But you know, that, that was just the tipping point. It's like, it was a well-organized tipping point, sort of like Rosa Parks on the bus Mm -hmm. refusing to get up. That wasn't, Mm -hmm. that didn't just happen. It was very well organized into a tipping point, even more so than, than last summer. But you know, it just, I don't know. And then it's hard to sustain. So we're talking about race right now, but we need to do this with the internet too. (laughs) Question. What do you guys think is the most appropriate analogy for the internet? For instance, is the internet an unruly teenager who needs to grow up? Or is the internet 
the Wild West. It's or, absolutely the Wild West. What do you guys think? Plus a whorehouse. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, I, I like where you're going. Um, it's funny. I was doing a little bit of, um, research into Tim Berners-Lee for, it was for this episode, but it was, it was tangential, uh, who, you know, developed and created the protocols for the World Wide Web. And it's, it's, it's an amazing, uh, historical moment because he was, he was, the, the computers were networked and scientists were able to send information back and forth, but it was like, I have to request this file from you, then you have to send it to me. And he was like, what if we just had an open set of protocols where like, if I turn this computer on, I can just see what's on your computer and you can turn your computer on and just see what's on my computer. And wouldn't that be more efficient? And that became the World Wide Web. But he, at that moment in time, he said, well, I could patent the fuck out of this and make a corporation, or I could just say, hey, world, this is how, this is yours, and everyone can now just communicate with each other openly. And that was the dream and vision of the original World Wide Web. And it was a Wild West, and it was a chaotic time, but the creativity that come at, came out of that was remarkable. And now we're, we're living with an internet where 99% of people consume the internet through a corporation's platform, not the open web. And that is, I think our guest Douglas will argue that this is an evolution, but not the end chapter of what the internet could and should be. And I think the decisions we make now as governments, corporations, and people today, 2021 and beyond, will shape the third, fourth, fifth, tenth chapter of what the internet ultimately will become. And uh, you know, I will be eager to hear his thoughts on the whole metaverse bullshit because I don't want Facebook's version of the metaverse. I want everyone's ver. I want everyone to be able to interoperably communicate in VR the way the World Wide Web used to be, not Facebook or Google's version. That's kind of what I think. That's the precipice we're on, and um, I, th I have a feeling our guests will will get into that. Well, first of all, how rude is it that Facebook took the term metaverse and trademarked it? <laughs> like, you, you shouldn't be able to do stuff like that. Like, <laughs> come on, people. You can't just be able to buy anything. I'm going to trademark sunflower. I'm sure it's already trademarked, girl. You're <laughs> you crazy. <know>? You're <laughs> crazy. I, like I should get some words. You know, you know how you like buy up URLs sometimes? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I think... I should start just getting some words, you know, just in case. Maybe Facebook yeah. will want to buy the words for me mm -hmm. later. People That's used to wild. do that. That was big business. Domain squatting was uh Yeah, a... now we gotta have word squatting. Just general words sure. that Facebook might try to trademark. Let's squat. Trademark on squatting. Yeah, yeah trademark okay. squatting, trade squatting. Yeah. Papa squat. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Is it time for trivia it's time for trivia and it, this is related to everything we're talking about so buckle up today's episode covers some of internet history of course and i have some lore from ye olden days of the world wide web uh but before we get into it um i just i, ha I have to ask have you guys heard of gmail mm, oh refresh I my memory did she go to yale with us Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yep. That is correct. <laughs> Student, yeah, no. Uh, Gmail is. Uh, it is like email, don't, but don't, it's don't Google. Tell us. We, we're good. It's Google. We got it. Okay. We got it. Uh, <laughs> before Gmail was launched by Google on April Fool's Day twenty. Uh, excuse me, two thousand four. As a matter of fact, wow. the name Gmail had a different meaning 
on the internet. What was Gmail in 1998, long before Google launched its now ubiquitous email host? Okay. Your choices are A. Gmail was Garfield Mail, quote, email with catitude, an account system <laughs> on the famous cartoon cat's website, Garfield.com. Catitude! I'm going with A. I don't even care what the <laughs> she's, she's locked in. She's, she's got it. Yeah. Uh, this was possibly used to access special features of Garfield.com, but also was a real email address. Uh, that, is, that is A. Uh, Allie goes there. Sight unseen. But, uh, Lindsay, you're going to hold out for the rest? Or, or, or are we done? Oh, my God. I, I would like to hear them all. Let's go. <laughs> okay. B, Gmail. Oh, Allie, get ready. You're going to have a tough choice. Gmail was gay mail, an email service, and very early dating site prototype for gay and lesbian users. It was full of coded language to protect the privacy of users who may have not been public with their sexuality yet. Uh, but most serious internet users at the time understood what the G stood for. The site was short-lived, but it is, it is notable because American singer-songwriter Melissa Etheridge met her partner, Julie, through the connections tab on Gmail. That is that's, choice B. That's great, but it doesn't have that. enough catitude for me. Got it. Understood. <laughs> Copy that. I like or, to sing Melissa Etheridge at um, karaoke, so I might have to go with this <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah. Great, yeah. Great karaoke mm-hmm. selection. Yeah. There. I love that. Yeah. All right. Or is it C? Gmail was short for giving mail, but it was not an email site. Instead, it was a place for users to upload their physical mailing addresses to a database. They were then randomized and matched with people anonymously with the expectation that you would send a unique gift to the other person, even if you didn't know the person. Uh, So this site was short-lived, only lasted four months, and was shut down amid privacy concerns and one alleged bomb scare. That is choice (gasps) C, giving mail, which is correct. Oh my God, it started out so sweet and wholesome and then bombs. God, people are the worst. Uh, (laughs) Sticking with catitude. Attitude all the way. I'm going to go with uh, giving mail. That seems so sweet and quaint and old school internet. Those were all good, though, Matt. I got to hand it to you. Those were all, that they was were all great. good. Good, yeah. good. Glad you yeah. enjoyed. We will, we will find out the correct answer, what the original Gmail was all about after this commercial break. We would like to thank all of our Patreon subscribers at the $10 or more level for helping us bring the show to you. Wesley Cordell, Jerry Duran, Jessica Fox, Kathy Phillips, Matthew Scott, and Melissa Elliott. Lillison and William. Thank you very much. Patreon.com slash 2G1P. Are they patrons or are they bots? We don't care. And now a real advertisement entitled, Anybody Need a Grandma for Christmas? In Tulsa, Oklahoma. From the number one online marketplace for gently used grandparents, Craigslist.org. I have nobody and would really like to be a part of a family. I cook, and I can cook dinner. I'll even bring food and gifts for the kids. I have nobody and it really hurts. Let me be a part of you. 
whole family. Wow, that bitch had catitude. <laughs> I also think Call she back. might be uh, cooking the kids for dinner. I'm I'm not saying she is. And but what I is think that is. if not catitude? <laughs> Truly. <laughs> I think now you might be disparaging cat ladies. They don't all want to eat children. No, but the, I hear if you die, the cats will eat your face. Mm. So yeah, it's catitude. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I love your commitment right. to bringing it back around to catitude. Yeah, that You're was welcome. well done. I just feel like this is a word that for some reason I never really considered before, and it's got a lot oh. of catitude. Yeah, You've this never has read Garfield. Life. That's like his thing. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm No, and I never did read Garfield, and I could have known about this as a child. <laughs> we should we should cover Garfield stuff, because like, it's, it's so a big old, internet thing. but it's a big internet thing, and then there's ironic Garfield people, and then there's like no i fucking love garfield people and then and there's I also know. garfield from memory have you seen trying to draw garfield from memory because oh, garfield's extremely familiar. easy to draw but like okay. and everybody thinks they know what garfield looks like and then you're like shit i don't know what to do really i definitely funny. don't and i feel like if i tried to draw garfield it would strangely come out as like tony the tiger it wouldn't be right <laughs> Ooh, tony the tiger is you know how i feel about him okay. yeah there's some fan fiction there garfield oh, and tony yeah, garfield slash oh, tony anyway sure. anyway for speaking of sure. garfield first <laughs> gmail what was it before google's email service a was it garfield mail email with catitude ali is locked in laser focused on that Nobody chose Gay Mail, which was a email service and proto dating site for gay and lesbian users. Lindsay goes with C, giving mail, uh, submitting your real address to the internet in the hopes of getting a little present. Are you prepared for the the real answer? Yes. It's so got to be the last one. It's so dumb. Like, people were so willing and stupid and innocent. Yeah. The correct answer is... It's A. It's Garfield Mail. Fuck yeah. She got it. She knew it. She knew it in her heart. The uh, Garfield.com website was home to the cartoon Juggernaut and his pals. And there are snapshots of the real website from 1998 that show a Garfield mail service emerging as early as 1997 at the URL gmail.garfield.com. It is unclear how robust the service was, but uh, some journalists and other internet archivists uh, have sleuthed, and it may have been part of an account system to access special features of the Garfield website. So it was a real email address, uh, but you could get other stuff on the website. According to a Gizmodo article, if you signed up for a Garfield email account, your email address would be, for example, the Lindsay Life at catsrule.garfield.com. And we know that this email suffix is correct because it appears in archives of Usenet groups and angel fire sites. People are like, yep, here's my email address. <gasps> catsrule.garfield.com oh. so it, this is interesting too the garfield franchise never owned gmail.com the domain name there is a persistent internet rumor to this day that google somehow bought the gmail domain from jim davis the creator of garfield that is not true uh it's really just stems from confusion around the fact that gmail was garfield mail but it was never gmail.com so google launched its own thing years later but the original Gmail was Catitude. Hot. I love it. Allie, congratulations. You knew that Catitude was the mood. 
<laughs> I was really trying to come up with another cat pun, but I didn't. No, sorry. Like I wanted I to do it. a I'm meow. I'm uh, you I could don't have know. said I'm I, perfect, uh, <laughs> but you didn't. There you go. There you go. We'll cut it. In. We'll edit it later. It's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's time for our guest. We are so excited to welcome our guest, Doug Rushkoff, who says he doesn't give a fuck how he's introduced. So please welcome this man who needs no introduction, Doug Rushkoff. Hello. Woohoo! How'd I do? Did you like that one? Was it good for everyone? I usually go by Douglas. <laughs> Let's kick this off by asking Douglas, tell us a little bit about your work and how you arrived at this grand idea of redesigning the internet. I don't know. I was a, a, a theater kid, actually, and a theater director. And I got, uh, I got annoyed, if anything, with... Um, actors? A few things about theater. Yeah, actors <laughs> there, too. Oh, we could talk about this the whole episode. Go on. We could. You know, it's exactly. It's like, I, if I wanted to be a psychotherapist, I would have gone... <laughs> To psychology school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and so I did feel like a lot of actors who were in plays were there not to service the script, but to service their own opportunities to do sense memory exercises mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> you know, exercise their past. That was part of it. But, but, but really, moreover, it was, it was theater was really expensive. And I felt like only wealthy yeah. people were going to theater and they weren't going to be changed. They were going to feel good about themselves. You know, I remember hearing a woman during the intermission of a play saying, oh, I cried for the lesbian as if <laughs> you're so good. You're so enlightened. You could even cry for a lesbian. All right. Um, and next. I'm sure this character had a name, but she did not remember it. No, of course not. She's just a lesbian. <laughs> My God. How could you even remember the name? I mean, that was the it was it was the eighties, to be fair, the early nineties. So honestly, at that point in time, that was probably progress. Yeah. She was I proud. Know. Progress of sort. Yeah, but <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't quite enough for me. And then I went to a, a, a production of Three Penny Opera where the cheapest seat was seventy dollars. And somehow that also seems strange to be doing, you know, kind of Brecht communist worker revolt, you know, three penny opera uh, plays for, for that kind of money. It says three pennies in the title. Exactly. You would think. That's all they should be able to charge. <laughs> um, I was getting really fed up with the the sort of structural demands of theater, that everything was was uh, the same kind of arc. You know, it was a crisis, climax, conclusion, like since Aristotle through Sid Feld and all the way to Robert McKee and Story, you know, in the, the blockbuster film, it was always about, you know, creating tension and then giving people an answer and out and relief. And it, it just didn't seem uh, uh, like it was going to help us solve problems. And just as I was getting fed up with theater, the internet was just starting. And I saw this new open-ended, interactive people's medium, right? I thought that the internet would bring the populism that theater lacked. And at the beginning, it kind of did for for a good long while. It was uh, an open invitation. And then, of course, you know, Wired Magazine and others came along wanting to figure out how do we make profit off this. They turned it into an attention economy, which we later called, uh, uh, you know, the surveillance capitalism and uh, uh, kind of killed the thing. So the, the, the redesigning the, the internet course that I'm going to be doing with uh, Jeff Jarvis, of all people, at CUNY Journalism School and coordination with Queens College, where I teach, is really looking at, you know, what would you do with the internet if you were in charge? And the idea being, you are in charge, so let's go do it, right? <laughs> and see, 
because it's all programmable, right? It's still, it's still open to our intervention, or at least aspects of it are. So let's see, you know, if, if there's something we'd rather, we'd rather be doing with this net than what's being done with it now. I love that. Yeah. I think we all know some of the flaws with the internet, right? Like issues with journalism, thriving off clicks, kids getting depressed from social media. But what are some of the sort of systemic issues that people don't realize? Uh, I think they do realize them. They just don't want to look at them. But um, I mean, the biggest systemic issue is that the internet is being used to uh, foster and sustain capitalism rather than to challenge it. You know, that was the part of the original beauty of, of even digital technology was you realize that, oh my God, so much of the world is programmed only it's programmed with these sort of read-only interfaces, things like uh, money and religion and education. They're all read-only and they're not really up for discussion. And digital kind of made, at least at the beginning, it made everything plastic. It, once you programmed your first little computer program, even in basic on a, on a mainframe, you could then look at television and say, well, why aren't I allowed to program that? And it's like, well, you are, or money. Why aren't I allowed to program that or my understanding of, of religion and family and gender and race? You can. It's all programmable. It's all, it's all plastic. It's all, you know, anything that's even anything that's not programmable is, is usually just that way because someone made a rule. You know, they're saying you're not allowed to see the code, not that it's not malleable. So it really, it can, it can set you off on a journey where you start to look at the world less as given circumstances and more as rule sets that were left by people who've, you know, long since left the building and didn't have our best interests at heart when they came up with the rules that we now accept as nature. So when you're thinking about the internet, it it feels like you think the way forward is for all of us to sort of take coding into our own hands and then build corners of the internet ourselves. Is, Is that kind of the best way forward? Well, not all of us, but any of us, you know, any of us who wants to, because there's all these other areas, if we're we're living in what you might call a digital media environment, and I don't mean that everything is actually digital and programmable as digital tech around us, but if we're moving from the kind of spectator lifestyle of a television era into the more programmer, hands-on kind of sensibility of a digital age, then we should be looking at all the different kinds of things and institutions in our lives as things that could be uh, reorganized or thought about differently. So, you know, you might say, oh, well, uh, marriage, say. I could look at marriage the way my parents and grandparents did, or we can say, oh, look at this, there's a throuple of people that are married together, or this is an open marriage, or this is a gay marriage, or, you know, so you start realizing that, oh, things are, are, uh, changeable and customizable and all the kinds of things that you might associate with a, a, a piece of software or a program can actually be applied to things in our world. Yeah. So what are you, th- what, what do you think are sort of the smaller interventions that need to be made? Well, I mean, in terms of this course, I mean, that, that I'm teaching, I'm hoping to really lead them to think about what are the changes they want to make. So I'm going to be, when I'm teaching, I'm going to be really careful not to um, give them, you know, the, what I think are the answers. Although I may uh, help them 
read about a lot of the problems. I mean, I want people to read about some of the original intentions of the internet, what folks like Ted Nelson were writing about with Xanadu in the early days. I want them to read about, you know, the real intention on the early net was to have two-way linking, which meant that rather than just linking to something, the thing that you linked to would know that you linked to it. You know, it would be a two-way thing rather than just this one-way kind of a, a mashup of everybody else's stuff. And what we went ahead with the internet without it. We couldn't figure out how to program it yet. We didn't really have, you know, blockchains and NFTs and all these kinds of all these kinds of things that maybe could offer those those abilities. So I want us to look back at that, um, and I do think a certain, a, a more of a, a of a Talmudic approach to our linking would be smart. You know, there's a, a, a lot of uh, developers and even writers and thinkers try to pretend that everything they're coming up with is like new. It, it, it's new IP. You know, there's this there's this <laughs> obsession with IP because then you could claim it or patent it, and it's like, no, no, let's go back to where we say. Oh, you know, as the great Rabbi Hillel said to the Rabbi Eliezer, said to the Rabbi this, you know, so you're building, you're standing on the shoulders of other people rather than trying to ignore them in order to have, you know, patent rights to some, you know, to some phrase. You know, so things like that. So looking at some of those original intentions, then looking at where things went wrong, and sure, surveillance capitalism and surveillance is part of it, but also the whole Silicon Valley mindset that that I've I've come into contact with a bit too much, which is, you know, just earn enough money to insulate yourself from the impact of all what you're doing by earning money in that way. You know, this survival mm. of the richest kind of mindset where, you know, they they make apps for other people's kids but don't let their own kids on an iPad. It's like, what is that? You know, you're sending your kids to Rudolf Steiner <laughs> school and you've got an organic goat share. But, you know, my kids, you want to be, you know, ha- to have this stuff, uh, you know, forced down their throat in a, in a public school. You know, what's wrong with that picture? So a lot of it's this, this looking at this, at this mindset. But, you know, I really do believe it's not people like me who are going to come up with, you know, what, what do we want to do with the Internet? But, you know, younger people, the people who are actually going to be in charge of, of stewarding this civilization, you know, away from the brink. Yeah. Well, what do you think is the way, or I don't know, what, what would you suggest as the way forward? I know there are lots of arguments for making the internet more open, but what is the best way for access to the internet to be designed, I guess? Well, I think we've got to reverse our orientation. You know, the blockchain is a really good example of a technology that's looking for something to solve, you know, and so many conversations are, what could we do with it? Well, could we do something good with it that's not just bad? Can we figure out a way to make it not just burn up the planet before we figure out what to do with it? You know, can we, <laughs> it's like, and, and I, we could end up having that same conversation with the internet, thinking of like, once the internet is the problem we're trying to solve, then I stop even caring. So I think the approach we have to look at is what are our problems as a species, as a civilization, as a planet, and how might the internet be tasked to some of those problems? So, you know, the distribution of materials, climate change, identity, politics. So then you could start looking at, okay, could we use these technologies to somehow uh, make a more liquid and accessible democracy. Maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe just using the internet to promote um, democratic or to do, to do voting or something like that just creates more problems, more confusion, more paranoia. 
you know, that, that we have what 30% of Americans think that, you know, the election was fixed through some computer hacking from an Italian embassy or something. It's like, you gotta, you gotta sometimes wonder, does blockchain really help us economically? Does it help engender trust between people who are exchanging value or does it just substitute for trust in an even more alienating way? Or in some places it does one thing and other places it does another. So I think if we, if we focus on real world problems rather than, you know, how do you fix the problems of the internet with the internet? You end up in kind of this endless cycle of wellness apps that are there to help us heal from using the other apps, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which are also created to turn a profit. Yeah. <laughs> They're not there for, for social well-being. Yeah. My goodness. Well, can you talk a little bit about decentralized versus centralized internet? You know, computing was decentralized at the very beginning. It was interesting, you know, when you would have a little radio shack personal computer, you know, Tandy made these, some of the first ones, you know, the only way that like one computer could really talk to another way, way back then was you'd get a cassette from someone else or paper tape, you know, of a game that they made or something that they wrote. And then you would pop in the cassette and play it into your computer. So the only way that you could catch something, the only way that you would move around was in that kind of asynchronous way. And the early networking was like that too. And you had a modem and a phone line and the phone line cost money to use or your mom wanted to be on the phone at the same time. You would dial into a computer, download that stuff, whatever that stuff was that was on the cassette or on the paper tape, put it into your computer and play with it. So it was decentralized by its very nature. And it's weird. Once we got to sort of always on, you know, whether it was DSL or 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 now, you know, everybody on Wi-Fi with their cable modems and Fios connections and all, once it became this always on phenomenon, it got less and less decentralized and started to feel more and more centralized, where you know, you put everything on the cloud or you in business, you follow, you know, Tim O'Reilly's web 2.0 philosophy and you see all these other players on the internet and the way you make money is by aggregating them all onto your platform. So it's really everybody just trying to go meta on everybody else and become the aggregator. And then if you look at all those people <laughs> aggregating, then you could become the aggregator of aggregators. <laughs> you know, you keep going meta on, on the, last, uh, the last level of people. It's all meant to kind of centralize, but it goes, it goes back and forth. It's like, you'll see everything get centralized on a few platforms, you know, Amazon, or it looked like, you know, Amazon, Netflix, and Apple TV were going to own everything. And then everybody started to create their own apps. And now there's more apps than I can afford. So I can't like see Hulu shows and Netflix shows and Amazon and HBO and Showtime. And this one, I mean, everybody's got their own streaming app. So it's all decentralizing again. And you know, all that means is eventually somebody's going to create, whether it's Amazon's Kindle Fire Stick or Google YouTube or somebody, they're going to create packages of all those, you know, all those decentralized platforms, or will it decentralize even more before it goes there? I was wondering the other day if, uh, if we configured NFTs properly, if everyone becomes a movie studio of one and you just launch your content, you know, <laughs> everyone just launches their own content and you don't need a Netflix or anyone else to aggregate it, then what happens? I, I'm trickling down to the people's level with you there. And I immediately think of podcasts. I often say, mm -hmm. Email and podcasts are the last open platforms we have because I can use Gmail and you can use Yahoo and we can both 
talk to each other and we can both get the same newsletters and I can host a podcast on Libsyn and you can host one on Megaphone and, we, and I can listen to them in any app that I choose. However, I'm, I get sad when I see the Spotify's and the Amazons of, world, of the world say, we'll pay you, big podcaster, gajillion dollars to only be on Spotify. That suddenly obliterates the openness of those interoperable you know, uh, systems. And it's, it's all we have left. Uh, and so maybe you have thoughts about do we regulate that? It's not a it's not a good example for regulation, but like what can we do to like save the last few open things about content on the web? It's weird. It's like it feels like the way to save that is to is for people to enjoy and adopt obsolete media. You know? Right. It's like, all right, so now we could do zines again, right? No one cares about <laughs> zines. Let's start making them. Until they get popular. No one cared about podcasts 10 years ago, and now every celebrity's got one, and they're all on exclusive platforms. So it, right. it's this ebb and flow. Right. The problem with the exclusive platforms thing is eventually when that gets so baked in that the exclusive platform doesn't really have room for the non-exclusive players or all the power law dynamics that that command, you know, uh, you know, Spotify and Pandora and Apple Music start to command these spaces. So instead of it being like the early web where everyone had a weird friggin' web page, you know, yeah. with its own design and its own passions, you know, it 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 moved from that to MySpace to Facebook where no one, everyone has a page, but they're all the same, you know, mm -hmm. and everyone's mm -hmm. supposed to, you know, talk about their, their personality in terms of the, what their favorite movies, favorite TV shows, but political this, it's no longer human. It's no longer, you know, decentralized in terms of uh, a person's personality and strain and, and strangeness. It, we, we lose the novelty, but I think it, it undulates back and forth, you know? So yeah, something like, you know, rock music, there'll be this period where everyone's got a garage band and they're making, you know, making all this music. And then the Kinks and 20 other bands, you know, become the top 40 and AM radio takes over and it's kind of gone. And it's this big business that you see on the VMA awards that, you know, one new artist breaks through every year, you know, <laughs> into this ridiculous, you know, uh, multi-zillion dollar industry. And it'll keep going that way. Everything will aggregate and aggregate and then break apart again and then aggregate again. And you just have to decide, you know, each of us decides where in that kind of universe of stuff do we want to um, do we want to participate? So for me, I mean, this stuff's gotten so centralized in a weird way. I'm going back to theater now as a way to get <laughs> more local and weird and individual. No one cares about theater. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, okay. It's, a, it's safe, you know? It, in some ways, that was the, the reason we migrated to the internet originally. It was the counterculture. It was Timothy Leary right. and Robert Anton Wilson and those folks that went online in the 80s and early 90s because the real world was dominated by, like, you know, Viacom and Murdoch and these awful corporations that wouldn't let us express what we had. So we went online. And then everyone followed us online. The banks came and the bookstores and everyone else. <laughs> and now the online is like the cesspool of, of uh, hedge fund insanity. So they left the real world behind. So now I'm thinking, <laughs> let's go back in the real world and then almost just snip them off, you know, the, snip off the cloud and let the cloud go up and we take back, you know, terra firma. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I love this plan and I'm signing up. Cool. You're welcome. <laughs> I just feel like this is such an ingrained conundrum 
And I appreciate your optimism, but is it ever going to be possible to really rebuild things at such scale? Like it's one thing when it's like small pods or communities, but will it ever work at scale? Hopefully not. I think scale is not the solution. I think scale is the problem. Yes, but the internet's gonna be global. But it, what it can do is connect lots of locals rather than be the thing in itself. That's why I don't want us to, I keep not wanting to solve the problem of the internet because mm-hmm. then it makes it like the monolithic giant thing. But who's going to do it then? <laughs> no one. It's like, how do we solve the problem of the religion? <laughs> you got to think about your personal relationship to the internet and get other people to do the same thing. Mm. Like, get other people to think about their personal relationship with the internet as opposed to passively participating in it. Yeah, I think the dilemma is that like these apps are literally designed to be addictive. So we're fighting much bigger forces than, you know, each person's individual will. Yeah. But you got to also look at, okay, so alcohol may be addictive, but it's not the only drink, you know? So you don't, you don't have to drink. Even if things are addictive, it doesn't mean that we're that, uh, that we're that powerless. We are up against a multi-trillion dollar industry that means to program humanity itself into submission to the business models of these, you know, algorithmically enhanced corporations. And that's really tricky. No sooner do we develop a defense mechanism than the algorithm has probably predicted the defense mechanism in advance and is already exercising its countermeasures. You know, we are in an arms race. And in some cases, the only solution to that arms race is the one that the Israelites gave us in the Bible, you know, however many thousand years ago. It's, it's Sabbath. You know, I, I started writing about mm. digital Sabbath in like 1999 when I first first seeing the, the move into this attention economy. I love that concept. <laughs> yeah. One seventh. Take back one seventh of your time and don't mm. produce or consume. Have no screens. Just be in the real world. Because one seventh was sort of like that weekly check-in with almost that Mr. Rogers sensibility of, you know, you're okay just the way you are. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to earn anything. You don't need to produce. You don't need to click. You really are a sacred little being just right now. Um, and if people had that, it would make them more resilient to the uh, addictive technologies that they may have to engage with at some, at some level, either for work or for school or to be a part of the, the sick society that we're living in. But in terms of scale, I honestly, I, I keep getting back to this idea of anarcho-syndicalism. You know, this, it was this sort of economic theory that came out of, uh, really out of Spain, I guess, originally. The idea that, you know, instead of having one giant economy, you have lots and lots of little cottage industries. You never grow businesses larger than they need to be in order to just achieve their own function. And they're all local, like little kibbutzes. And the, the problem was it was really hard for the syndication part of that to work. How do you syndicalize? How do you network all of them together? And that's what the internet could do. It could allow mm. uh, like a Mondragon type, you know, a, a network of networks, a cooperative of cooperatives to interact and, and assemble their iPhones or whatever it is they need to do together um, without ever having a single scale giant Apple monstrosity, you know, in a, in a defensible, you know, circle in Silicon Valley. Yeah. 
It's happening. I mean, it, it is. That's the dream. And it, and it does happen every day. Like we are creating a radio show right now without a single studio. We're all distributed. Like that is the dream of uh, of what this stuff could be. You heard it. We're the Internet's dream people. We're making a radio show. <laughs> it's a radio show. It is. It's a beautiful thing. But then you just have to not. You know, you're not going to get Howard Stern rich off it. That's that's it. That's it. Yep. And that has to be okay. And it's not only okay, it's you don't want to be Howard Stern rich. Believe me. Don't speak for yourself. I don't want to be anything <laughs> related to Howard Stern. I want to be Howard Stern rich. No, you don't. No, I, I want to be. She's going to go do I wanna it. I want to be Don Cheadle rich. Is that can I do that? Uh, Allie's got the hairstyle to be Harvard <laughs> Stormwich, so we're halfway there. I'm on my way. Cool. So <laughs> I know you said you don't want to give us solutions, but are there grassroots movements, organizations, maybe in other countries that are doing this work well? There always are. I mean, but but usually they're not uh, entirely, you know, tech focused. I mean, like I like, uh, you know, shareable. Um, who are looking at sort of lateral economic solutions. Um, you know, I like uh, Eli Pariser is looking at how do we create a new civic space online. I always liked what Mika Sifri was doing at Civic Hall. My friend Paul Mayer is looking at creating a, a, a data commons for medical data so that your medical data is not valuable to any company because it's all part of a commons that anyone could use and you either tag it to yourself or not. But, you know, turning data into a commons is a great, it's a great solution to data surveillance because how do you buy and sell something if it's just become part of, <laughs> part of a free and usable right. uh, citizen-governed commons? You know, I, I'm not, you know, so much a fan of the uh, uh, humane technology movement because I still feel like they look at human beings as a programmable stack. You know, how do we upscale humans and upgrade <laughs> humans? It's always a little bothersome. But there's other folks, you know, the, the guys who are doing all tech is human are asking a lot of the right questions about how do we design, you know, human-centered technologies, which is so much of my work. You know, the last book I wrote was called Team Human. It, it turned out to be radical that I was arguing that anything that helps us, you know, genuinely connect with each other is, is on our side and anything that isolates us from each other is not. And it was kind of it's a really simple way of looking at it, you know, real nice and uh, uh, digitally polarized. But, you know, uh, a lot of these technologies, they start out, you know, we think they're to help us engage with each other more meaningfully, and they end up, you know, dividing and conquering us in just the worst, the worst possible ways. So, you know, I'm interested in anybody who's doing, you know, work at looking at how can we actually help people to commune or, or forge solidarity. Um, but that only finally really, I think only really, really, really happens in the real world with other people. I mean, it's great that we're talking now and having some kind of a thing, but this wouldn't be enough to feed your soul with the actual communion that it needs. You know, if anything, the, the camaraderie that we're able to draw upon here is our reserve camaraderie that we have from our interactions in meat space with other, <laughs> with other human beings. The, the solution set is both. And right now, I don't know if it's a matter of us thinking up new tech so much as building our our human connections and resilience doing some breathing and feet on the ground and yoga and you know you're sort of re restoring our sense of what it means to be human um, so that we can then bring that to our internet development rather than sort of going from the other direction you know how can we use the internet to do this or to do that 
And backing up briefly, you know, we're, we're, we keep grasping for like, hey, how can we solve this? How can we do this? Uh, the commons thing that you mentioned, Douglas, it reminds me of Wikipedia. It's like, talk about an insanely valuable piece of uh, real estate on the internet. It's free, it's public, it's communally created, and it is driven as a nonprofit. And that was a conscious choice by the creators of Wikipedia. And now the commoditization of encyclopedic knowledge by publishers, now we can all just have it. And human beings chose to do that. They, they, they could have been bajillionaires, but they said no. And it's working. It's working so beautifully. You know, uh, today, it's not something, it's not a far-flung idea. It's happening now. Yeah. The amazing thing about Wikipedia is that it has fought off so many really awful yes. possible incursions. I mean, it's, it's amazing that it hasn't just turned into a graffiti or, uh, you know what I mean? Or just ridiculous, you know, uh, attack articles. I mean, they show up and it happens and things go back and forth, but they really did decide by making it a commons. There's no such thing as a tragedy of the commons. Tragedy of the commons is a myth put out by people who are afraid of the commons. Hmm. The fact is a real commons is governed. And yeah. the, the governance structure around Wikipedia has ended up being so resilient that it's really a remarkable collective achievement. And it, we, we always keep mentioning it because it's like the one, well, there's Wikipedia. <laughs> it's like the one example. <laughs> <laughs> no, where, where are the rest of these? All right. I know. I, that worry, it, it makes me wonder if it was a fluke of history and, and circumstance, or if it truly is a durable model we could apply to other things. And I, I don't know the answer. I wish, I wish it was the latter. I think it's the internet. I mean, that's really, mm -hmm. it is the internet and the rest of it is Friggin' crap, you know? <laughs> it really is. I remember in the late 90s, I got a call from a headhunter that was interested to see, it might have been the mid 90s actually, like 95 or 94, if I was interested in being the head of, of internet for um, Citibank. Whoa. Yeah. And I'm just this weird psychedelic rave guy who wrote a couple of books on the internet, right? <laughs> nice. and, it's, and it's like, and I was like, okay, really? Um, I don't know about money and stuff. And they're like, yeah, but you know about the internet, you know, you're going to get us online. And I did this one meeting and I'm like, guys, don't put Citibank on the internet. That's like a really dumb idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> from, from the way I understood the internet, it was like internet is like Wikipedia, right? The Wikipedia plus some, some dungeon games, you know, some text-based dungeon games. It's like, this is a play space. This is where we're going to Everything will be plastic and could be challenged. It's like you don't want to you don't want to put your bank on a network where every single computer on the network is sitting there constantly saying, "Hello, do you have anything for me? Hello, come inside me now." You know, it's like no, <laughs> you don't, you don't, don't do that. But they did, and they won. I mean, they they now, if anything, you know, the internet is more about commerce than anything else, but or the internet that we think of as the internet. But when you talk about Wikipedia as the exception, maybe. That's the net. You know, that is the net. And everything else is just an add-on. Mm -hmm. well, in terms of the original vision, you know, of this place where we're going to store all of human data, all of our, all of our knowledge, and cross-reference it in a way so we can make different use of it, I feel it's, the, it's gotten the closest to, to providing us that. Well, I have one final question, which is how the fuck are you so optimistic about this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't think I am. You sound it. <laughs> but you're asking me, what can we do? You're not, mm -hmm. what do I think? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think uh, uh, civilization could end in your lifetime. 
We have the technology to make that happen. We do. Sure. I mean, and and we have the we have the wherewithal and the mindset. I mean, I'm speaking to you on the in the the same week that the Supreme Court pretty much exposed that they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Don't, I, mean, I can't. <sighs> I can't. Oh my god! I. Uh, right. It's a strange moment, isn't it? You know, and then so then you can say, so then what happens? OK, so then we have a Congress that couldn't even pass an equal rights amendment. You know, there's, women don't have equal rights established by the Constitution yet. They were unable to say that. No, I'm not. I'm not entirely optimistic about the future of our of our species, but I am optimistic that whatever bad stuff is going to come may just give us more of a chance to survive. You know, if, if something really bad happened and half of us were wiped out, well, at least climate change is solved at that point, right? Because there's <laughs> one half the energy is going uh, uh, to be used. So I do think there are many paths towards civilization continuing on another few centuries. Our only choice is really how compassionate do we want to be as we move through this next phase? You know, and the more compassionate we are, the more willing we are to not scale every friggin' thing, to do less, to have less, to spend less energy, um, the more of a chance we're going to have to, uh, to survive. But the other thing we'll realize is, oh my gosh, by not driving somewhere every weekend, I've learned to meet my neighbors. I've learned to spend time with my family. I mean, these are not crazy values. I'm not asking us to go backwards in time. I'm asking us to push forward through this extended adolescence of consumption and possession and addiction and restore the basic human bonds that make life worth living in the first place. The extent to which the internet can help us do that, can offload some of the craziness so that we can spend more time with each other, you know, God bless. But the extent to which the internet becomes the distraction or the, the new excuse for consumption, you know, the new reason to burn fossil fuels in worship of an imaginary coin, that's like the stuff we really, we, we should dispense with as quickly as possible. Well, Dougie Douglas, this has been a lot, <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. You've given us a lot to think about. And thank you so much. This has been a lot. That was extremely delightful for talking about sort of the end of society. <laughs> yes, I believe he said the end of civilization may arise in our lifetimes. So uh, yikes and a half. But, oh. you know, he's not wrong. And it's probably the best thing for the planet. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Did, apparently, there's a documentary about how during the pandemic, how like how quickly the animals reverted to what they historically have done when the humans went away. Right. Oh yeah, they that were living great. their best lives. Yeah, yeah. So, man, it's just I appreciate people's optimism, but it just feels very complicated. And at this point, you know, there's trillions of dollars behind keeping things the way they are. Absolutely. And it's none of the dollars that I have will be able to fight that. But <laughs> maybe we as individuals can protect ourselves. Right. Yeah, that's I, I really like my takeaway was like you 
20, 30 years ago, you could not make your own radio show. Like you could not make your own video or what, like it just was not possible. Now you can, if you expect to be world famous from it, you're doing it wrong. But if you want to just create something for a small audience or for yourself or for your family, the internet gives us the tools to do that. And isn't that awesome? We don't have to fix or change the broken internet, but we should use the tools for good and for self uh, actualization, and then, like Douglas said, maybe maybe there's a digital Sabbath in there so that we can, or like you were saying, Lindsay, that we personally can stay away from the bad stuff. We're not and not worry about fixing the trillion dollar, bajillion dollar industry, right? Yeah, but you know, where there's money, there's gonna be corruption, and people like money. Yeah, for the record, I would like to be Howard Stern rich. I would like to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, yeah, I, I maintain I'd like to be Don Cheadle rich because even Douglas thinks he's a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't say I wanted any fraction of Howard Stern's personality, but. I'm just saying to be Howard Stern rich, you got to be a little shithead. <laughs> you think? There are plenty of. It seems like it. Yeah, for him. But yeah. Anyway, if you are willing to step up and take personal responsibility for the internet, <laughs> uh, you know, you can email us to g1podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail. We love that. That number is 347-871-6548. That number again, 347-871-6LIT. Also, and perhaps I should have mentioned this first, you know, we are not funded by a huge conglomerate. And so if you want to <laughs> keep this directly to the people, patreon.com slash 2G1P. No amount is too small. And thank you to everyone who already supports us there. Uh, you can also and, and, and follow sorry, us. Sorry to, har- sorry to harp on it, but no. God bless Patreon. And I don't just mean that for yeah. us. It's like the, the platforms that, that be, that power these things did not, empower creators to make a living so a, a, a small company not i'm sure they're larger now came along and said what if there was a way yeah, for Patreon's audiences to support yeah and I, others like yeah. it yeah. yeah i do know performers that like their money comes from yes. patreon which is pretty yeah, cool their, their, their grocery shopping comes from patreon it's it's an amazing thing that didn't need to exist and it does and uh the internet makes it possible so well, let's help uh, us be supported by patreon patreon.com slash 2g1p you can also follow us across social media i'm at ali underscore goldie a-l-l-i underscore g-o-l-d-i and i am at the Lindsay Life, T H E L I N D S E Y L I F E, across all them platforms, baby. Oh, you can also join our Discord, discord.gg slash 2G1P. And fairly recently, we finally joined the behemoth that is Facebook. So if that's still your jam, you can search for Two Girls One Podcast on Facebook. I think those are all the places we live on the internet, and we hope to see you there. Bye. Podcast is hosted by Allison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford, then filmed before a live studio audience, which then became a COVID super spreader event. I mean, produced and edited by Matt Silverman in New York City. Additional editing by Avital Ayler. Production assistance is provided by the Podglomerate. This show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in-depth reporting about life on the internet.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe. I have nobody and it really hurts.